We find ourselves in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 36. Uh, we, had, we had last week off due to Thanksgiving, uh, but the week before that we were in Romans 11. And here tonight we'll finish up the chapter. Romans 11, verses 25 through 36. Allow me to read it. Please follow along as we get started. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their because of their disobedience, so they too have been disobedient, in order by, that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let me pray for us tonight. Lord God, all glory be to you. Or even as we've gathered here tonight. As we've sung praises to you, and now as we look to your word, we seek your glory and your glory alone. God, I pray that you would speak to us your truth. God, that we would see your great mercy, that we'd see how worthy you are of glory and praise, and that we would worship you. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> how many of you guys know... Leonardo Leonardo da Vinci. I know Leonardo the Ninja Turtle. The who? The Mutant Ninja Turtle. Oh, the Mutant Ninja Turtle. How many guys know Leonardo the Mutant Ninja Turtle? Not for more. Uh, more. More people know the Ninja Turtle than da Vinci? Oh my goodness. That is sad. I'm sorry to say. Okay, well then, this may not make sense to you, uh, but I'm going to say it anyways. All right. Some of da Vinci's. Uh, he has, he has many great artworks. He's an artist. Was. Okay. He's dead. Some of his famous pieces, The Last Supper. Anyone ever seen The Last Supper? Okay, The Last Supper. Uh, the Vitruvian Man, the guy that, that, look, that looks like this. You don't know? The version of the rocks. Okay, maybe. Probably not, okay. But probably his most famous artwork, and indeed most would probably coin this as his masterpiece, is, anyone know his masterpiece? Uh, the 10,000 Stars, I think. I don't know. <laughs> the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa. They don't heard of the Mona Lisa? Okay, that is like the Vinci's. Yeah, you don't know. Okay, the Mona Lisa. Uh, that is like probably, maybe the last supper, but that's probably like his greatest masterpiece. Is probably what, what most people would say. 
Although you guys wouldn't say because you don't know, all right? <laughs> now, I, I, we, we can't compare right, a mere man with God, but in comparison, all of God's creation is an incredible display of his magnificent artwork in a way, right? Like all of his creation we see is a display of God's magnificent artwork. And God's masterpiece, if you will, is his work of salvation for his people. That is God's masterwork of of all of his great works, his work of salvation for his people. And Paul, upon telling of God's great masterpiece throughout this book, really all the way up to this point, now is just in complete awe of God. And maybe you heard it as we read it, that short doxology at the end, that he just bursts out an outburst of praise to God. The last three chapters, especially chapters 9 through 11, we've seen God's great purpose and his plan and sovereignty in salvation. And ultimately, all of this leads up to one greater purpose. And that is the glory of God. We see the glory of God in salvation. As one commentator put it, he said, quote, The supreme benefit of God's redemptive plan, both for Jews and for Gentiles, is to bring them salvation and eternal life. But the supreme purpose of that plan is to glorify himself, end quote. Salvation is all about the glory of God. I think that is partly why we can say that that is his masterpiece. It's his work of salvation for his people, because it brings him glory. And we come now to the end of his section here, this section of chapters 9 through 11, in which Paul has explained God's plan and his sovereignty and salvation. And we now reach the climax of his argument, as Paul now will further explain the great mercy of God in salvation, and then we'll jump into a doxology of God. So those are going to be the two things that we look at. I have a PowerPoint, but we don't have it up. It's not working on the computer right now, so... I'm not writing it on the board. Okay, I tried that once. That's why I switched to PowerPoint. Because everyone make fun of my writing. Okay, so. I don't make fun of your writing. Thanks, Kay. Pretty sure you do. Yeah, I, think, I, think, I think it's stem from you. All right. So our first main point is the mystery of God's mercy. The first main point is the mystery of God's mercy. We see this in verses 25 through 32. The mystery of God's mercy. There's two subpoints to this. The first is that God has a purposed plan for his people. God has a purposed plan for his people. See this in verses 25 through 29. Look at what it says in 25. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery. Okay, Paul presents a mystery that he wants his readers to understand. And when we see the word mystery, we have to think about that correctly. A mystery in the New Testament is, is not a riddle, maybe like we would think of it today. It's not, it's not something that we need to figure out or we need to solve. That's not the mystery in which he's talking about. A mystery in the New Testament is a truth that has been hidden for a select time but has now been revealed. That's a mystery how they would describe it in the New Testament. Uh, that it's a truth that's been hidden for a select time but now has been revealed. And the core of the mystery that Paul reveals is the mercy of God. 
That's really the core of it, of this mystery, is the mercy of God. In verses 25 and 26, he presents three parts of the mystery. He says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Those are the three mysteries. The first part of this mystery is the partial partial hardening of Israel. The partial hardening of Israel. That the hearts of God's chosen people, the Jews, if you remember, we've been talking about this last three chapters, they have been hardened. When we've already seen this before, if you remember going back to chapter 9, Paul says in chapter 9, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God's chosen people have been hardened as they have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And this was a profound mystery that has now been revealed. No one ever would have thought of God's chosen people being hardened. Now that being said, as it says right here, that is, it is a partial hardening. It's a partial hardening. It is not complete. It's not a permanent hardening. Not only has God kept a remnant of believing Jews for himself, as we've looked at, but also this hardening will only last for a certain time according to God's sovereign will. So we ask, well, when will this hardening end? And he says, it will go on until the fullness of the Gentiles has come, which is our second mystery. If you're following along in verse 25, right? It says that partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So that's the second mystery. This is what we, we, we've already seen before as well. That, that now, because of the rejection of Jesus from the Jews, Gentiles have been grafted in to the olive tree. Do you remember that? The last time we met, two, two weeks ago, of the Gentiles being grafted in. Gentiles are now part of the family of God, which is a profound mystery. And not only that, but notice that Israel's hardening will last until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. Now, until is a very important word because it reveals a set time. That there will be a time when all of God's elect Gentiles have been fully called. And then the hardening of Israel will be released. At that point, all Israel will be saved. Which brings us to Paul's last mysteries, he says in verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, this is where most of the controversy lies. In that statement, all Israel will be saved. Five words in the English, three words in the Greek, and hundreds and thousands of words written on debating on what that means, all Israel will be saved. And all of which, these different debates and these arguments, all of which I believe have good arguments behind them. I really do think so. But I do think that some are better than others. And so I do want to spend some time developing the three main views of the statement, all Israel will be saved. Okay, Because theology does matter. And we must be good students of his word. All right, So it's about to get pretty heady. It's going to get very maybe theologically dense. For some of you, but I want you to try to stick with us here. All right? And we're going to see how theology matters. It's not just head knowledge. Now, I will also say that we, we must not be dogmatic. Right? We must not just say, no, nope, this is it for sure. It's my way or the highway. But while it's true, it's also important for us to explore what we believe is the best understanding based on this passage and the context at hand. 
And so that's my goal is to show you what I believe this is saying based on the context and what we see in this passage. Okay. So the first view, I'm presenting three views. The first view is that they say that I don't have names for these views. Okay. Um, but the first view that is they're saying that all, when it says all Israel will be saved, they're referring to a spiritual Israel. That all of spiritual Israel will be saved. This view holds to the thought that all of Israel is, re- is re- referencing a spiritual Israel, referring to all believing Gentiles and all believing Jews. That that is the new Israel. That the new Israel is all Christians. Whether Jew or Gentile, you are part of all of Israel. All of Israel will be saved. Jew and Gentile, that, that's the, that is the true Israel. This is a very popular view with our reformed brothers and sisters. And it's not a bad view. Although I do think there are some problems here. And the main issue, I think, is being that of the context as a whole. They are lumping Jew and Gentile together as one, right? As one spiritual Israel. But the entire chapter has been a clear distinction between Jew and Gentile. If you remember the olive tree example that we looked at in the last passage, very clear difference of the Jews and the Gentiles. And even in the verse right before this, verse 25, there's a clear distinction between Jew and Gentile, right? He says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Two distinct groups, not one. And in addition to that, the term Israel is found 11 times in this chapter, chapter 11. And the other 10 times, it's very clear that the term Israel is referring to the group of people physically, not a spiritual people. When Paul says Israel on those other ten times, he's referring to the physical group of people, the Jews. He is not referring to a spiritual Israel, as in those who are spiritually alive in Christ. It's not how he uses the term Israel. And so it is very rare that in the middle of the passage, it would suddenly take a different theological meaning. That Paul would change the word from talking about a physical Israel to now talking about a spiritual Israel. It's unlikely. I, I don't see evidence for this being a spiritual Israel, including all believers, including Jews and Gentiles. It seems most clear to me, at least, that, that Israel is referring to the physical group of people. Okay, we, we, we need to let, as we study God's word, we need to let the text speak for itself. We must not speak for it. We must not speak into it. But we have to look at the context as a whole. I believe that there's a clear distinction between physical Jews and physical Gentiles. And so we need to stay consistent with the context. And again, while there are many good theologians on this side that believe in this, right? It would be a, a, a uh, covenantal side, right? A, a very reformed side. Uh, I, I do not think that is the best or the correct view. Okay, but that's one view. The second view is that Paul is talking about the elect Jews. He's talking about the remnant. When he says all Israel will be saved, he's saying, yeah, Israel as in the elect Israel, the remnant. He's saying that all those elect Jews who are part of the remnant will be saved. And I think this is a better view as it keeps consistent with ethnic Jews being saved. It at least refers to Israel as the physical group of people. Plus, Paul's already spoken about the remnant of Jews. So I think it does fit contextually. That being said, I think there are some minor problems here as well. For one, I think it's very anticlimactic. 
What I mean by that is this, that this is Paul's climax for his argument. He is revealing a mystery to them, right? He starts off by saying, let, let you be lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, right? So th- this, he's presenting, revealing a mystery to them. And, and the mystery is that, that all elect Jews would be saved? I, I don't think so. Paul's already stated that. That is, that, that, that is not a profound mystery that they need to understand. I think it's much bigger than that, which is why even in verse 12, he says something greater is yet to come. Remember, he says that if their trespasses mean riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Right. There's something bigger in mind here. There's a bigger mystery. Something greater must happen for the Jews, which brings us to the third view. And I believe the most correct view, although I, I could be wrong, but this is where I would land after my studies. And this view, the third view, deals with Israel as a whole, as a group of people, that God will no longer harden them, and they, as a whole, will be saved. That a whole, the physical people of Israel will be saved. That all Israel, God's chosen people, will be saved. Do take it Quite literally. That being said, this does not mean that every single Jew will be saved. I don't believe that's what all means. All is a representative all. Okay, It it doesn't mean each and every Jew without exception will be saved. I don't think so. It's a representative all. We, we, We speak like this all the time. Get it? We speak like this all the time, just like that. Okay, you see what I mean? And the Bible does so as well. Okay, let me just give you one example. There's many. Let me give you one found in 2 Samuel 16. Absalom takes David's concubines and he lays with them on top of the house. Let me read 2 Samuel 16, 22. Very graphic. Okay, 2 Samuel 16, 22. Listen to what he says. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Okay? So Absalom, David's son, this is what he says. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Of all Israel. Does that mean that each and every single Jew in Israel was watching this happen? Is that what it means? No, right? Not every single Jew in Israel was watching this. No. This is just one example of all Israel being used as a representative all, a, a, a majority. Right? It says all Israel. It's a representative. It's a majority. I just got my car smogged a couple of weeks ago, last week, recently. <laughs> and the guy there is from Iran. And we're talking, and in light of the World Cup going on, he asked me, he said, hey, are you watching the, the World Cup? And of course I said no. Why would we watch the World Cup? And, and, and okay, and he, I said, are are you watching it? And he said, oh yeah. In Iran, we all watch soccer. And I said, really? You all watch soccer? Like the infants, the one-year-olds watch soccer? No, I didn't say that. I knew what he meant, right? He he meant like yeah, we all watch soccer. I didn't think every single person in Iran watches soccer. Okay, maybe in Honduras, huh? Yeah. yeah, see? But in Iran, no, I knew, of course not, right? It's representative, I knew, it's a majority. I think that's what's happening here. 
I believe that Paul is saying that there will be that that all. It's a representative of all, but I I do believe Paul is saying there will be some kind of revival. Revo- sorry, a revival. That there will be some kind of a turning of ethnic Jews in which God will open their eyes and they will accept Jesus as the Messiah and they will be saved. I think this is also most consistent with the olive tree branch of being grafted back in. As you remember, that the Jews are going to be grafted back in. I think it's most consistent with the mystery being revealed. That there will be a future sudden awakening and salvation of of salvation of Israel as a representative whole. I believe that. And this is what I believe based on the context and that the passage is teaching us. But again, cannot be dogmatic about it. It's highly debated, and I think there are great points on every side here. And I know that I may, I may be wrong, and this is where I land. Okay, now please keep in mind, though, even with that, that we must be gracious with one another and our differing views okay especially with stuff like tier two and tier three and four issues like this this is not a tier one issue okay we we, we must not take debates like this in scripture and, and then take sides there there are no sides in the family of god we are on one side we are in one family and it's okay to disagree with things like this We can still fellowship. We are still part of the family of God together. And when it comes to things like this, we must hold our convictions with an open hand, knowing that we have error in our doctrine. But I believe this is what the passage is saying. Overall, we think of it as a context as a whole. Chapters 9 through 11. God's mystery of salvation is this, that God's chosen people will be hardened and they will reject the Messiah, that this would be used to bring Gentiles to God, and then a time will come when Israel returns, is grafted back in, and God's plan of salvation has been fulfilled. I believe that's what we've been seeing the last several months. What a profound mystery that that is, right? And what does this show us? I believe this shows us that God keeps all of his promises. Always. That God keeps all. All of his promises, always. The understanding that God always keeps his promises to his people is essential. In fact, that's where it all started. Okay, At the end of Romans 8, if you remember, at the end of Romans 8, remember the great claim that Paul made? Verses 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Right? Like, that's incredible, and that sounds great. But is it true? Nothing can separate us from the love of God? Is that true? What about Israel? Didn't God promise never to leave nor forsake his people? If God did not keep his promise with Israel, how do I know he's going to keep his promise towards me? Didn't God fail Israel? Will he fail us? You see, this is what launched Paul into this section of chapters 9 through 11, in which he says, God has kept his promises towards Israel, and he will for you too. And again, in that greater context, I think that's why we can see all Israel will be saved. God did not forsake Israel. God has a perfect plan of salvation. And part of that perfect plan is that there will be a partial hardening, that this hardening will end with the fullness of the Gentiles has come, 
and then all Israel will be saved. God did not completely abandon and forsake Israel, but he will keep his covenant with them. God's promises are unbreakable. His promises are unchanging. His promises are always true. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So you see, theology matters. Theology matters, and theology affects the way you live your life. This passage, and really the last three chapters, shows us that God always keeps his promises. That God is faithful to his word. That God will not make a promise and then go back on it. So Christian, rest in the truth of God's word. Knowing that even at times when it seems like God has not kept his promise, know that God always keeps his promises. God works in mysterious ways. Ways in which we don't always see and ways in which we don't always understand. But at the end, we can know and we can trust that God always stays true to his word. And ultimately, that God is being glorified through it all. Mm-hmm. All right, so that's, you guys You guys got through it, okay? That was, that was the, the headiest part, okay? Let's continue to our next point. Our second sub-point, still under the, the mercy of God, is that God's people should not be spiritually prideful, but instead should extend mercy to all. God's people should not be spiritually prideful, but instead should extend mercy to all. God's people should not be spiritually prideful, but instead should extend mercy to all. In Espanol? Gods. Gods. Dios. 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 Big Oh I'm done. I can't. Raymundo's been trying to teach me. It's just not been working. He tries. All right. Sorry, Ray. I failed you. All right. There's no reason for spiritual pride. No reason. The only reason anyone is ever saved is because of the mercy of God. Look at verses 30 and 32. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy, or sorry, for just as you at one time were disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Okay, what's going on? Paul is telling the Gentile, look, Gentile, don't look down upon the Jew and think that you are somehow more deserving of God's love than they are. And then he's telling the Jew, Jew, don't look down upon the Gentile and think that you are somehow more deserving of God's love than they are. There's no reason and there's no room for spiritual pride here. We must understand that all of us, all of us, are ill-deserving of God's love. Okay, to put it in layman's term, we all suck. <laughs> we all suck, and do not think that you are the exception to that. 
But you know what's great about understanding the reality of our spiritual condition that we all suck? Is that we can better see and understand the richness and beauty of God's mercy. And the danger is when we let spiritual pride rule in our hearts. That's the danger. Now, what are some of the potential outcomes, the potential dangers, if we allow spiritual pride to rule in our hearts? I present three. Three potential outcomes, potential dangers, if we allow spiritual pride to rule in our hearts. The first is this, that you begin to think that you're better than others. You begin to think that you're better than others and maybe even more deserving than others of God's love. And we probably would never say that out loud. We wouldn't say, oh, I'm better than others. Maybe you would. You wouldn't say that you're more deserving of God's love than others. But maybe in our hearts or in our thoughts, the, the way we look down upon others, we, we think we're better and we're more deserving of God's favor than they are. And in the context of, of, of your right standing before God, if you think yourself as, as greater than someone else, even uh, of an unbeliever, it is because you do not understand the reality of your sinful nature. Or you don't understand the depth of God's grace. Or both. In your spiritual pride, you, you, you have forgotten or, or you have misunderstood how sinful you are. And how utterly helpless you are apart from the grace of God. Christian and non-Christian alike, you need the grace of God. Because you are a wretched sinner. I need the grace of God. Because I am a wretched sinner. So be careful of not letting spiritual pride cause you to think you are better or more deserving of God's love than others. Number two, the second potential danger of the spiritual pride is that you begin to think that those who are not like you are hopeless. You begin to think that those who are not like you are hopeless. What I mean by that is this. Maybe you look around your circles, your circles in youth group, or, or in your clubs, or, or, or at your church, or wherever it is. You look around your circles and you notice the non-Christians in your circles, let's say. And you look at the non-Christians in your circle and you say, okay, they have a shot at this. In time, they're going to become a Christian. Like, I see it. They're here in youth group. It's good. They're in my circles. They're, they're saying the same things. And, and, and you think that way. You think, okay, they have a good shot at being a Christian because they're much like you. They're in your circles. They have the same interests. They're the same upbringing, the same, you know, whatever. Like, it's all the same. And so, and you, so you think, hey, if, if I became a Christian under these circumstances, I, then certainly they can as well. We're, we're, we're very similar. Look, I became a Christian. So I have, I have hope for them. But what about those who are not like you? Well, those who aren't in your circles. Sometimes in our spiritual pride, we may assume that they're hopeless because they're not like you. And we think, well, God would never save them. Like this is what the Jews were thinking of the Gentiles. God wouldn't save them. No way. This is what the Gentiles were thinking of the Jews. They've already rejected God. He wouldn't save them now. And that's why he had to go in chapter 11 and say, no, they're being grafted in. The Gentiles are being grafted in. And the Jews, they're being regrafted in, right? There's spiritual pride in both of them. Are there those in your life that because they're so different than you, you feel as if they're hopeless? Because they're so different than you, 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 you feel as if they, they'll never be saved. 
Maybe like a, a family member. You're like, man, they, they hate Jesus. They're, they're, they're nothing like, like, like my, our, our, let's say, oh, my cousins or my uncle or whoever. Yeah, man, they, they don't like Jesus. They never go to church. Man, they'll never be saved. Or a stranger. Oh, man, look at him. Yeah, no, he, no way. He'll never be saved. Someone walks into church. They look kind of shaggy. They look kind of weird. And like, oh, man, what's he doing here? He didn't belong here. Or a public figure. Our president. Oh, man, he'd never be saved. An enemy, someone that you hate, whoever. You just think that, that, that they're hopeless? Because they're not like you? Do you spend time praying? Do you spend time evangelizing? Do you spend your resources in sharing the gospel with the hopeless? I say, quote, hopeless. No one is outside the reach of God. You are not outside the reach of God. And if you are a Christian, do not think that the only reason God saved you is because you are are better in some way than the so-called hopeless non-Christian. Don't don't have that spiritual pride to think, well, yeah, I know we're saved by grace, but look, I was in better condition than than this poor chap. He's hopeless, right? At At least I was better. No, you were just as hopeless as they are. And how hopeless is that? 100% hopeless apart from Christ. But 100% hopeful with Christ. The same? You and that so-called hopeless person. So do not let your spiritual pride cause you to think they are hopeless because they're not like you. And thirdly, lastly, and probably worst of all, the danger of the spiritual pride is that you begin to forget the mercy of God in your own life. You begin to forget the mercy of God in your own life. That in your spiritual pride, you forget that that, that even you, yes, even you, need the mercy of God. You forget just how much you need God's mercy today and tomorrow and for all of eternity. And you start becoming self-confident and you forget that God's mercy sustains you each and every day. Have you forgotten the mercy of God in your life? Have you forgotten the mercy of God in your life? Maybe you've forgotten the darkness of your own sin. You've become spiritually prideful and you've forgotten how rotten to the core you are. Maybe you've forgotten that without mercy, you have no salvation. Mercy is your only cry for help. Without the mercy of God, you still owe the just penalty for your sin, which is an eternal consequence. Do not forget the mercy of God. And if you're here and you are not a Christian, if you're here and you are not in Christ, I tell you, appeal to the mercy of God. Seek the mercy of God. For this is what you need. You need the mercy of God. This is your only hope. For peace with God, you need His mercy. And do not think that you need to be like everyone else to receive the mercy of God. Do not think that you need to fit a a particular mold of a Christian to become a Christian. What you need is the mercy of God. Ask that by the grace of God, He would grant you faith to believe in Jesus Christ and that He would grant your heart Grant you a heart of repentance of your sins. And in doing so, his mercy 
will wash away your sin. Now next, Paul just goes, he just goes bananas. He just goes into this doxology. So our next main point is called Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be glory. All right, Soli Deo Gloria, verses 33 through 36. Paul just dives into a praise of God. He, he says in, in verse 33, he starts off, oh! And the oh for us would be like, whoa! My hearing, you all right? You got a little startled, okay. Right, that's what he's doing. All of a sudden, he's just, you know, they're reading in the church. And he's just reading, for God is consigned all to disobedience, he may have mercy on all. Whoa! The depth, the riches, that's what it was like, all right? He's just going crazy. He's overwhelmed with the greatness of God's mercy, which he just talked about, and the depth of his plan for salvation for the Jews and the Gentiles, and now he just has to dive into praise towards God. He just can't, he can't help himself. Okay, i got to praise God. And, and when, when, when writing or, 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 or when speaking, it's really difficult to describe how awesome God's character and, and God's works are. You can't do it. And we try, we use similes, we use metaphors, we use examples, right? Use Da Vinci, okay, that was lame, right? <laughs> you, you, like you try to help, like help us better understand, comprehend, like how awesome God is. But the closer we get to understanding who he is, the more these metaphors just fall apart, the less they work. And so all we're left with is, oh, the depths of God. Elliot, now I got you. It must be a help thing. I don't know. Sorry, guys. Okay, seeing God's plan of salvation ought to bring you to the glory and the praise of God. And, and let's be honest. These last few chapters, you remember chapter 9. Whoo, man, that one, right? Like these, they've certainly raised more and more questions about God, these last few chapters. And it should! Because God is not a God who, who is fully fathomable by our human minds. The more we know about him, the more questions are presented. But do not let the unfathomable riches of God cause you to stumble. Instead, let it lead you to worship. That is what it does for Paul. He breaks into doxology. So two subpoints for this. The first is who God is ought to bring you to the glory and praise of God. Who God is ought to bring you to the glory and praise of God. Let me read verses 33 and 34. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Let me stop there. Paul specifically points out God's infinite wisdom and knowledge. Let's look at both of those in more depth. We see God's infinite, his inexhaustible wisdom. And we think we have wisdom, right? We think we have the right and the best plans. And what's worse is that sometimes we even think we have greater wisdom than God himself. And we'd never say that. But that's often how it's played out in our lives. Anytime we presume on our will over God's will, we are suggesting that we have greater wisdom than God. When things don't go according to plan, to our plan that is, and, and, and we get upset at God, we get upset at oh, this is how it's supposed to be. We're suggesting that our way is better than God's way, that we have greater wisdom than he does, that we know better than he. And who are we? Are we God's advisor? 
Are, are, are you his counselor? Why do we try to counsel God? Oh, God, are you sure about this? I, th- I think we should go with my plan. Right? Who are we? I mean, look at verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been his counselor? Oh, I, I, I have. No! Yeah. You haven't! How dare we act as if God needs our advice or he needs our counsel? What are we doing? Instead of being stubborn in our own ways, acknowledge the infinite, inexhaustible wisdom of God and praise him. We spend too much time insisting on our own ways when we should be using that time in awe of God's great wisdom. We also see not just his infinite wisdom, but we see God's infinite and inexhaustible knowledge. God does not just have infinite knowledge about things and of life, but I want to specifically talk about that he has an infinite personal knowledge of individual people, of you, of me, of everyone. How incredible it is that he would have such deep knowledge of us and yet still choose to love us. He knows the depths of our hearts. He knows how rotten we are, better than we even know of ourselves. Yet he chooses to love us. And yet he died for us. How silly is it then when when, when we when we choose not to love someone because because we've witnessed a small degree of their sin see what i'm saying like someone sinned against us and so we we experience we witness a small degree of their sin and we choose not to love them and yet god knows their sin in an infinitely deeper way than you'll never know and if they're in christ and god still loves them and who are you not to love them who am i not to love them Say, whoa, look at them. Look at them and their sin. We choose not to love them. But God knows it even deeper. And God says, no, I do love them. Do you have some supreme knowledge over God that, that would justify not loving them? No. Instead, we ought to see the infinite, inexhaustible knowledge of God. And it ought to bring us to his glory and the praise of him. Now, lastly, our last subpoint here. That what God has done ought to bring you to the glory and praise of God. Not just who he is, but what God has done ought to bring you to the glory and the praise of God. We're not just in awe of his character and who he is, but also in his actions and his decisions and what he has done. In the last few chapters, we've looked at the incredible work that he has done in salvation, right? That it is all Him. It is none of us. If God did not act, we would have no salvation. None of us. Do you understand that? Aren't you so glad that He acted first? It's not that God responded to our longing for salvation. God initiated the whole thing. He is the one who gave us the longing for Him. We love him because he first loved us. It's not that God held up his end of the bargain and then we held up our end of the bargain. We're like, okay, we have a deal here. God held up both ends. He did nothing but just go against our end of the bargain. But he did it all. 
He lived our righteous life. He died our sinner's death. He paid the penalty for our sin. He forgave us of our sin. He gave us new life. He seated us in the heavenlies. You see, he literally, he did it all. And all of this by his grace. Meaning we do not deserve it. And he was not obligated to do any of this for us. God does not owe anyone anything. Because for one, we don't deserve any of his blessings to begin with. He doesn't owe it to us. And for two, he's already given us everything in his son. What more do we need? Nothing. And on the flip side of that, know this too. That we, we cannot graciously give anything to God. Sometimes we feel like we do. We cannot graciously give anything to him. Because by definition, if we were to graciously give something to God, it would imply that he doesn't deserve it. But what good does God not deserve? He deserves our best. He deserves our first fruits. He deserves all glory and praise. And even that does not come close to the infinite value and worth of God. What can we give him that does not already belong to him? Nothing, says verse 35. Nobody says in verse 35. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? See, anything you might give to God came from God. It already belongs to him. When we give money into the offering, that money already belongs to him. He gave it to us in the first place. When we sacrifice our time, we sacrifice our lives for God. That already belongs to him too. Our lives don't belong to us. It belongs to him. We cannot repay God. We cannot pay him forward so that he owes us something later. We can't say, God, I spent a lot of time serving you. I gave a lot of money to the offering. Do bond. Good job, do bond. I went to church every single Sunday, even when I was sick. I was here that one weird Wednesday night when everyone was sick. Not me. I was here. So, God, you, you know, you should answer my prayer, right? How I want. Like, you, you should. Look, God, I've, I've been living good. Like, at least get me into the college I want to go to. I've been living good. I earned this. You owe me. Right? No. God does not owe us anything. Anything we give to him already belongs to him. We do not do anything to put God in obligation to us. Instead, we must recognize his great works and give him the glory and the praise due his name. As we close tonight, and as we close this section of Romans 9 through 11, we see God's glory displayed in salvation. When you see, when you hear of God's salvation towards his people, what do you say? What do you do? When you see or you hear of God's salvation towards his people, what do you say? What do you do? You assume that it's natural? You assume that, it, yeah, it's, it's the next step for the people who grow up in church. Have you grown accustomed to, used to, hearing of people becoming Christians? 
Has it lost the shocking value that a dead person has come to life? When you see or hear God's salvation towards his people, do you give glory and praise to God? That's really what it's all about. His glory. His praise. And that is what we seek to do when we come together, we worship him together. We seek to declare his great work and declare his great work and salvation all for the glory and the praise of him. How do you approach Sunday morning services? How do you approach Wednesday nights? Be careful not to make it like everything else in life where it becomes about your entertainment, your preferences, your consumption. When we gather together, whether it's on Sunday or whether it's on Wednesday, it is about pointing you to the glory of God. It is about you being in awe of God. It's not about entertainment. It's about seeing God for who he is and what he has done and worshiping him. That's what it's about. And this awe, it, it is, it, this awe of God does not just end in lip service by saying, yes, praise God. But it's more than that. It leads to a worshipful life, which is exactly where he's getting to in the next verse, chapter 12, verse 1. He goes into this doxology and then he says, all right, now let's go live for him. That's what we're going to see in the next chapter. That we ought to be in such awe of God that it leads to sacrificial, worshipful life to him. What does that look like? Let me leave the Christian with just a few points of application based on this passage and what that looks like. Based on what we saw tonight, verses 25 through 36. First, I'd say this. To extend mercy to all. To extend mercy to all. God shows no partiality. His mercy extends to all peoples, Jew and Gentile. Just as you have been shown great mercy from God, Christian, so you too must show great mercy to others. Secondly, study God. Theology matters. It matters. Be students of the word. Be students of the word. Test what is right. If you do not have a proper theology of God, you will not have a proper doxology of God. Go deep in your study of the word and study correctly. Don't be content with just spiritual milk, but dig deep into spiritual meat. Thirdly, let that theology lead you to worship. Let, it, let that theology lead you to worship. Don't just fill your head with knowledge, but let that theology lead to worship. It's pointless if it's just head knowledge. But as you learn more about who God is and what he's done, that ought to lead you to a life of worship. I want to end by reading 30, verse 36 and then get to one illustration. Verse 36 for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Who gets credit for the magnificent beauty of salvation? God does. All glory goes to God. 100% belongs to him. All glory.
I want to close by an illustration. Hopefully that brings that point home. I didn't come up with this illustration. It's from a, a different preacher. I believe it's helpful. But we'll go. I'm adjusting a little bit because we're going to go back to Mona Lisa and Da Vinci. I'm going to try. <laughs> we'll try to save it. We'll see. Okay. Imagine going to go see the Mona Lisa. Okay, there you are. By Da Vinci. There is the Mona Lisa in your scene. Everyone's there, right? There's a crowd around the exhibit. Everyone's there to go see the Mona Lisa. That's why, you know, whatever, you buy a ticket, you go do those things. But that's what you, you, know, you see down the hall. There's Mona Lisa with a little light on it. Everyone's there watching and seeing it. And you go up and you see it. And you marvel at it. Right? Wow, look at it. There it is, the Mona Lisa. But we don't just give credit. We don't give credit to say, wow, look at that canvas. <laughs> a beautiful canvas. You don't say, wow, how did... How did she, Mona Lisa, just appear on there? She's so great. She's skilled. No, right? You think, wow, Da Vinci. You don't know because you don't know who that is. But you say, wow, Da Vinci. He's so good. Look at his masterpiece. Right? You give credit not to the painting. You give credit to Da Vinci. Now imagine if you're there in the exhibit room and then Da Vinci walks in to the room. Now, it's weird because he's dead, but imagine he's not, right? And he walks into the room. I'll tell you this. If Da Vinci walked into the room, no one would be looking at the Mona Lisa anymore. Who would they be looking at? Da Vinci, right? Everyone. They'd be swarming Da Vinci. No longer would they be swarming the Mona Lisa, but they'd be swarming him. Why? Because the glory, it, 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 it goes to him, the creator, not the exhibit. Not the creation, but they want to know Da Vinci. Tell me about it. Wow, you're so. How'd you learn this? What'd you do? They want to know about him. They give him the glory, the praise. They don't. They for, forget the Mona Lisa now. We have him. We must do the same with God. When we see salvation, we do not glory in ourselves or, or in anyone else or in anything else, but we swarm God, and we give him. All the glory. Yes, the salvation of his people is his masterpiece. But we don't glory in the masterpiece. We glory in the creator and the author. Glory in God. Right? He is the one who receives all glory. Be in awe of the gospel and of salvation. Yes. But even more so, be in awe of God. And give him all glory and praise. Let's pray. Oh God, we give you all glory and praise. God, indeed, it is you and you alone who deserves all glory and praise. Lord, not us, but you. God, for who you are, for what you've done. God, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your great plan of salvation. God, that that includes the Jews and Gentiles. Thank you, God, for the hope of salvation through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would glorify you and praise you and worship you. Lord, I pray that we would give our lives to you out of great love for you. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that we would see you better and more clearly so we may live for you joyfully and sacrificially for your glory and your praise. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.